what are dependent types? And I would say that dependent types are a more expressive type system in programming languages used to catch a larger class of errors at compile time. Uh, so the typical example of a dependent type in action is the ability to declare in the type signature that the output string of a concat function should be the sum of the lengths of the two input strings. What are would be typically assertions at runtime can now be caught at compile time. In previous episodes, we've talked about how AI agents could be self-negotiating by you know, reading documentation and understanding the semantics of the system. But here, I think uh, maybe dependent types. If you had some type of dependent typing that could be exposed at a protocol level, then uh, that could also simplify things. Hi, this is Will. I'm a YC alum and an independent researcher who's worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrency, and financial industries. And I'm Sri. I'm a YC alum and a research engineer focused on natural language processing for search. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. We're two guys discussing edgy, fringe, or overlooked technologies over a couple of drinks. Our show has four segments. First, we give a high-level outline of what the technology is. Second, we talk about what it can do today. Then, we let our imagination and optimism take over and see how the world would change if the technology was readily adopted everywhere. And lastly, if we believe in this future, how can we take a position on it? Can't be experts in everything we cover, so if you've got insights on the topic, let us know in the comments. And be sure to check out our audio versions on Apple Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, <laughs> so you can go about your day as you listen. First, in the spirit of kicking off our discussion, what are we drinking today, Shree? Uh I am back revisiting Poppy Brand. Uh, no. This time I have the Raspberry Rose. It's a prebiotic soda. Let's check it out. Yeah. No. I am on my uh, hard seltzer. I got a White Ooh. Claw. Never had it before, but it's tangerine flavor. Spiked sparkling water. I had some earlier, but uh, it just tastes like sparkling water. It's hard to believe <laughs> it's like 100 calories. It doesn't, yeah. You're hardcore. You're too hardcore to taste the alcohol. Yeah, too hardcore to taste it. So, <laughs> Are you excited about this week's topic? Uh, Shri, we're we're moving on in a different direction this week. Yeah, this is this is a fun one. Um, I'll let, I'll let you actually introduce it, and then uh, yeah, I'll I'll chime in. Mm. Well, so this week we're call, uh, we're talking about dependent types. So as always, what are dependent types? And I would say that dependent types are a more expressive type system in programming languages used to catch a larger class of errors at compile time. So the typical example of a dependent type in action is the ability to declare in the type signature that the output string of a concat function should be the sum of the lengths of the two input strings. And so you can also use dependent types to write functions that only take, say, non-empty lists or strings that are well-formatted email addresses. Uh, because currently with typical type systems, you can't really dictate the length of the list, right? And so mm -hmm. dependent types let you do that. And what are would be typically assertions at runtime can now be caught at compile time. Uh, so uh, what I've said so far, do, does that make sense, Street? Yeah, it does. It's kind of crazy, though, because 
I mostly work in code bases in the past that didn't even have any types. And (laughs) slowly but surely, I think in the last couple of years, people have been adding optional types to like Mm -hmm. dynamic languages. Uh, But this is even far beyond what many um, advanced languages like Haskell even have. Right. Actually, like people think of Haskell as this like weird out in right, left field, right field, like completely like off in the distance sort of language that most people wouldn't know a lot about. And they use like odd terms like this is even a step further than that. And like I there aren't that many mainstream languages that actually there are no mainstream languages that have dependent types. Um, I've seen blog posts that hack around it um but uh they're not fully supported in any mainstream languages so like we can i'll I'll talk about some of the languages that do support them later on but unless you look into or dabble this in this sort of stuff you probably wouldn't have heard of any of them and i guess that's why we call this the tech team podcast where we talk about the edge of technology right so (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, it's it's really crazy though because basically what you're saying is that we're blurring almost the distinction between runtime and compile time because yeah. even if you are familiar with types, there are two phases: the compile time where there's the type checking, and then there are these runtime properties, and uh, mm-hmm. you can't usually do things like inspect the values that are the inputs to a function or an output of a function and mm-hmm. do some checking on that until you actually run that program. But here, what you're saying is that right. with dependent types, you can, because like in the example of concatenating two strings and making sure that the length of the output string is the sum of the lengths of the input string, um, that requires some knowledge of it, like its inputs mm-hmm. and the behavior, yeah, that, that's the runtime right. behavior. And so I think the one good way to think about it is that in any programming language, there are types and what people in type theory call terms. And essentially, you can think of terms as just expressions. An expression is just a compositional combination of constants, variables, uh, functions, and so on and so forth that when put together, return a value. And so that's a, as opposed to a statement, which is more like the imperative paradigm where you call a statement and some side effect happens. And so uh, programming languages have types and terms. And typically, like the work that you do with types is almost like on a separate level or a playing field than the terms and expressions, right? Because you have your type declarations and oftentimes they don't really mix with the actual computation that you or implementation that you're doing you typically think of them as two different things but just like in functional programming functions become first class citizens where you can pass them into other functions and and then you know pass them around as values here types can now also be values that you can operate on pass around and you can do operations on them. And so that's kind of where the the line between types and terms start to blur so that you can do certain things at compile time to do what typically would be runtime assertions and checks. 
Yeah, and the cool thing that I've seen in in a couple of languages, and maybe you can list what some of these languages that have dependent types are, but at least mm-hmm. in the sample of ones that I've taken a look at, it's the same language that is used for both uh, code that operates on terms and code that operates on types, uh, which yeah. is which is different than I think um, many other languages where, like you said. There's a special, you know, type type language or type annotation system or something, which yeah. doesn't use any of the features and functionality of the actual language that you're writing your logic in. Um, mm-hmm. I think the closest thing that I've seen maybe to in a mainstream language is something like Zig, which allows you to do comp time mm. generation yeah. of types. But the difference there is that with dependent types, you can <laughs> actually. Whole- Access it, it's uh, funny that we call Zig a more mainstream language <laughs> on our podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, let's go on. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think I think the 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 difference with Zig is that uh, Zig has a separate uses the same language in its uh, com time pass as it does during its runtime pass, but it's not able to access the. Uh, the terms, the runtime variables in the same namespace mm-hmm. as the comp time variables. So that's the difference there. Mm. Yeah. I thought dependent types were a really interesting take on the direction that types can take programs. Because I know that a lot of times you try to write a program and you're just not sure if it will work at all or not. And we developed all sorts of cultural practices and behaviors and rules of thumb to help mitigate it. And uh, dependent types are one of the few instances where programming has turned to math to try to solve some of these things. And I guess it's strange because programming was rooted in, in math, but for a variety of reasons, we've kind of moved away from it and dependent types would be something where I guess it's, it's like going back to the roots. Like what's, it's like if we were the programming was the Beatles, it would be like, I don't know, whatever album they, they did to go back to their roots. I wish I could name it, but I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that, that, that's kind of the, the one interesting part of it. Um, yeah, well, but, can you, but can you yeah, give some like names the, of like um, yeah. examples of languages that have dependent types? Yeah, ones that specifically support dependent types are uh, Agda um, and Cock and Isabel. And these are more well known as proof assistants and people that are working in type theory. And they're basically mathematicians that want to do uh, work mathematical work in proofs with languages and denotational semantics and stuff like that. Um, They typically work with these languages for people that are more, I guess, more practically orientated, whatever that would mean in in this context. um, They've turned to Idris. What's another one? F F star. Although I haven't looked too much into uh, how F star is different from, from the other ones. Um, I've seen blog posts where people have hacked the existing type system in Scala and in TypeScript to do parts 
of what dependent types are able to do, but I don't think all the features of dependent types languages are are fully supported in these other languages that you kind of hack things into. I see. So this is what you mean by returning to its roots in math in that this exists in languages that are even more obscure than like Haskell, which I think many people already consider very obscure. Right. And Haskell doesn't natively have dependent types, although there are plugins and libraries that help it use dependent types in Haskell. Um, but yeah, but but if it's any indication, like I looked at Agda and Idris, the syntax pretty much looks like Haskell. And I th- is Haskell in the ML family of languages? I, I don't remember. I don't uh, know. But, but yeah, like the, the, that all looks fairly uh, familiar when I was taking a look at it. I see. If you uh, if familiar, if you can read Haskell, then then Agda and Idris <laughs> will look pretty familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, why do you say that it's related to math? I think that's an interesting question, with a answer that was surprising to me the first time that I heard it. There's a talk at Strange Loop 2015 Vintage by Philip Wadler, uh, where he gives a talk called preposition as types we'll put it in the show notes but in it he talks about the curry howard correspondence and the curry howard correspondence is kind of an observation or a rule i I guess a, a rule of thumb an observation that it seemed like any good idea in logic in mathematician like math logic math was independently rediscovered in computer science and vice versa. So apparently there's some sort of duality going on between logic and computer science. Um, And so, for example, type schemes were discovered by Hindley in 1969. And then Milner later on in 1975, uh, like put out a paper on the ML type system. And so these ended up to be equivalents of each other. And all the type systems of functional programming languages today are based on this ML type system. And similarly, there is a duality between the mathematician logic world of modal logic and monads in the computer science world. And so you'll see this kind of duality between logic and Uh, computer science to the point where you can say that in logic you have prepositions and the equivalent in computer science is that they're types and then in logic you have proofs and the dual of proofs in computer science is programs and then in logic the normalization of proofs is equivalent to the evaluation of programs in computer science. So there's this kind of like odd correspondence between logic and computer science. And Philip Wadler calls it uh, Curry Howard as a double-barreled name that generates other double-barreled names. So that's how you get the Hindley linear <laughs> type system, uh, stuff like that. Um, yeah. And interesting. And it's, it's, I liken it to almost like a periodic table where one of my big pet peeves about the internet is when somebody puts up the periodic table of X, where X is something that is not 
about chemistry, say like interior design or infographics or something like that. And so first of all, their periodic tables are never periodic. And two, there's mm-hmm. no predictive power, right? Like one of the things about the periodic table in chemistry is that you can see where there's like spaces and holes in which an element should be there, but we don't know what that thing is. And so you can go figure out what that is. And so I, I, w- I would say that Curry-Howard correspondence is kind of like the periodic table in the sense of its predictive power. Like if you have something that we know in logic in the math world, then there should be some sort of correspondence in the computer science world and vice versa. Um, So the idea of dependent types comes out of this work that mathematicians and logicians and computer scientists have been doing on type theory. And that's how it relates to math. Because one of the things, so anyways, before I move on, does that, uh, uh, was that something that you found in your research as well? Yeah, I thought that that was interesting. And the way that I see that it relates to dependent types is that even with this Curry-Howard correspondence, you have these uh, sort of proof systems or or logic, like you're saying. And I think maybe it's useful to think about logic as some set of rules in which you say, well, if this and A and B are true, then it follows that some other properties hold, right? Like this is what Mm -hmm. a a proof is. And uh, I think what what makes dependent types interesting is that it almost unifies the two. Like if you have a program, you can get a proof out of it or maybe vice versa uh versus yeah i think typically yeah. those those two things are are separate right like you have proof uh yeah uh proof languages and normal languages that you use to write programs and dependent types unify these two yeah because like in our tla plus episode we talked about tla as a language for the design of protocols and it's like a, a kind of proof system right it's it like um you can do formal verification on some sort of algorithm that you're working on, but it's still up to you to translate that formal specification into the implementation language that you're writing. Um, And mistakes can occur there. But the interesting here with languages that have dependent types is that the program is the proof. That's pretty cool because that means you don't have to write the same thing twice. Yeah, and and so I, I think it holds a lot of promise, and I I haven't used it in full. I played around with it a little bit, and there's some affordances I thought were interesting, which we'll, we'll get into later. But I, I think I'm cautiously optimistic here. And the other aspect about how dependent types relate to math is interesting, in that uh, there was a mathematician whose name escapes me at the moment laid out the possibilities of different type systems that you can have in a programming language into something called a Lambda cube. And the reason why it's a cube is because there's different combinations of how types and terms can interact with each other in a programming language. And so at the bottom left corner of 
this lambda q is the simply typed lambda calculus. And it's like the basic lambda calculus that we know and love with simple types. And the different things that you can add to a programming language's type system is how you can convert from term to terms, which is functions, right? Functions are something that you put in terms and you get out terms. Um, and then you can do types to terms, which is polymorphism, or types to types, which are what we call generics. And then the last missing one is called terms to types. And so you can have uh, different combinations of these sort of features and they give you different type systems. And so the Lambda cube is a way to categorize and organize kind of the progression of weak type systems like the simply type Lambda calculus all the way up to what is called the calculus of constructions. Very fancy uh, up in the <laughs> upper right-hand part of the cube. And, and so so I, I think that's the other thing I wanted to mention just for people that wanted to go dig into this a little bit further about like how, how dependent types are like kind of related to math. And, and it's, it's the time where programming turns to math. Because I, I think typically it's something that really surprised me about programmers is how allergic a lot of programmers are to math. You would think... But but it's totally not the case. Yeah, I mean, some some programmers are very very into math, and the other set of programmers are very allergic to math and and notation and things like that, which we've touched upon. And I think it's an interesting mm -hmm. conflict that we can go into in terms of yeah uh, what it would take to get dependent types into the mainstream. But yeah, we can touch upon that right. later. Well, we know we all know what the answer is. Build a billion dollar company and when people ask you how'd you do it? You say dependent types. Dependent types, yes. <laughs> exactly. So so one thing that I wanted to move on is to is kind of a, a sketch of how it works. Because like, I think normally we don't do too much of like how a particular technology works, but it, it does seem a little magical that you can check the runtime properties of a program without running it. That that seems weird, like when you say it like that, right? But in fact, it's it's not so weird when you understand that the terms and types are kind of mixed together, and so um, when when they both are first class values that you can intermix between each other, then that means that you can assign a separate type to each number, right? Because typically we say like the numbers zero through, I don't know, uh, two to the 32 are all ints, for example, right? But with dependent types, you would be able to give a different type to each number. Um, th does that make sense so far? So yeah, I mean that sounds kind of crazy, but one. yeah, that does that right. does make sense. <laughs> right, that sounds crazy, right? The number two has type two, and so on and so forth. And so yeah. that also means that you can now assign a separate type to a list of different lengths. And so for all lengths possible for a list, so you can say a list that has one element in it is a type of list of one, a list of uh, 
with two elements in it would be a type of list of two and add infinite. It, it sounds crazy, but like we have compilers to manage this sort of stuff for us. And so you don't have to write this sort of stuff by hand. And so I think the thing that gave me the aha moment was that uh, with this setup, I could see now that the value of a term is now encoded in its type. Does that make sense? Like, like the, the type is now more fine grained to encapsulate just one value. So the number one has a different type than the number two, even though they're all ints. So it's kind of yeah. like the type is not uh, dependent on the oh. term of a different type. So it's kind of like now we can define the length function that will take one of the above list types and then have a dependent return type of one for the number one uh, for the type that is for the list of one element. And so the, the two type for the list of two elements type and so on and so forth. And so at compile time, when concat is being compiled, it can inductively prove and check that the lengths of the input add up to the lengths of the output. Because remember, the, the length of the concrete instance of the list type is encoded in the type as a list of three elements. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So basically, you're tracking some properties beyond simply that this is a list, which is a container or something like that. You're also tracking potentially the length uh, or other invariants about the data structure. Yeah, yeah. So so that's kind of how I understood it. And it sounds crazy, but I guess you can do crazy things when there's a compiler to kind of handle it for you. I, at a at face value, it seems like this would just blow up in terms of the number of types that it generates. But I guess there's some magic optimizations that they're doing so that you, this isn't a tractable problem. My take is that it's probably lazy. Like in order to prove the set of natural numbers, like you don't need to have iterated through the entire set of natural numbers. Like you can set the base case and then the inductive case and and then that should be good enough. Mm, I see. And I have to say that like I am not a type theorist by any means. <laughs> I don't think Shree, neither are you. So if yeah. you, as the viewer, has other things to add to our description of dependent types, then by all means, let us know down in the comments and we'd appreciate it. And if we get enough things wrong, look forward to a dependent types uh, part two, I guess, right? So <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so so I, I think uh, moving on to the next segment of our discussion, I mean, like the interesting thing is like now that we kind of fi cover like what this thing is, like what are dependent types? Like what does it let us do that's new? Like what are the new things that you can build? Like, uh, I mean, there, I think there are the obvious things um, that came up. Basically, like you can do compile time checks that normally would be runtime assertions. And so you can build programs that are, correct by construction like that that are correct and that check themselves uh, I, I think there are probably other things but i was wondering if you saw anything in your research or travels on the internet for like what what's it let us do that's new yeah i think it would be helpful to enumerate some of the interesting use cases for dependent types that are a little mm -hmm. bit more concrete yeah uh, i think that 
some examples besides the like lists that know their own length at compile time are things like asserting that some value is positive and remains positive throughout the lifetime of its uh, existence uh, or mm-hmm. a string let's say that you want to put something into a database uh, and it, it i don't know the, the column has some cap on the length uh, of its input so you might want to track like a string is at most n characters long or you have two values and you want to keep track that one value is always greater than the other that's some kind of invariant that you want to to um uh maintain and so basically i think this connects to an article which is titled uh making illegal states unrepresentable in mm-hmm. that dependent types and typing in general but i think dependent types what they allow you to do is make certain things that you would have to actively check for usually in like lesser programming languages uh, you'd usually have to check that some properties are true of the system right like oh Mm -hmm. check that this integer is not null check that this thing is positive etc etc and now with dependent types what you can do is actually relax or you can get rid of the that kind of checking at runtime and push those types of things to the type system uh, and it would uh, prevent those uh, the variables or those terms from taking on those illegal values, uh, but almost by uh, by proof or by construction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, playing the devil's advocate, then like, why would I want to use that if I can specify invariants? with uh, database constraints like shri why why would i use this like i have i have uh checks in my orm i have uh uh like uh constraints on my database like why why would i do this per se yeah i was thinking that too but one most compelling argument that i heard is that proofs compose so logic at, at a mathematical level composes. And so mm-hmm. if you wanted to test all properties of your system and all invariants of your system, there would be this combinatorial explosion of things that you would have to check for. So, for example, mm-hmm. if you wanted to make sure that some invariants held, uh, you could write a lot of unit tests. But then let's say that you have more than one invariant that needs to hold. Uh, you'd have to write a lot a lot of unit tests that potentially exercise all combinations of those invariants to make sure that for all combinations of inputs that the outputs are valid, for example. And, and oh. to give an example, I think uh, I was writing some, some code recently uh, for work in which I, I was adding a new code path that would sometimes modify some of the logic that was being run. And there was an existing mm-hmm. test suite. And I, ha- I had written another, I think, tw- 10 or 20 unit tests for my code path. And I, right. then I was faced with this inkling of a doubt that, hey, like, what if there's some weird interaction between the, like, when my logic runs and all the existing uh, uh, unit tests that are there? 
Like, should I rewrite all the existing unit tests that are there, but with my, uh, that exercise, my code path? I don't know if that makes sense, but basically, but like, I couldn't assert for sure that whatever, uh, I was exercising or whatever logic I was adding wouldn't change the invariants that were already being asserted because those Mm. things don't compose. Whereas I think with dependent types, uh, you don't have that worry because basically it verifies the whole program as a proof uh, rather than simply um, leaving it up to you to check assertions through all valid code paths in your program. That sounds really compelling, which makes me wonder if you can do better DevOps through dependent types uh, because I guess one of the long running themes of this podcast is where almost every episode I rant about how I dislike DevOps because it's just a collection of arbitrary configuration files and declarative programming languages with settings that can break uh, arbitrarily. And Mm. like, I never like learning any of that stuff because I feel like they're not concepts I can take with me. And yeah. so I'm always loath to mess around with it. Um, but uh, maybe with dependent types, you could get uh, something that, like like a DevOps developer experience in which you can take things with you and you, you can like have composable things. But uh, I guess that we, we might want to leave that to a second, third order effect discussion. But in the near term, I did see a tweet by the author of Idris, a programming language that has dependent types, where he's like saying that he was trying to compile Idris itself and he had forgotten some sort of environmental variable that he had to change. And it wouldn't compile because the environment variable was wrong. And he's like, oh, okay, that's great. Because I would have deployed this thing and the environmental variable would have been wrong. And I would have had to like debug this, trying to figure out what the hell happened. But like it can catch like dumb like configuration settings like this. Um, and that's one of the nice little benefits that happen when you use it as opposed to the toy example of the vector links, which uh, I think is not indicative of the value that you would get from dependent types. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. I actually was curious how that worked, but that is a very practical thing, right? Because most of the time, I think the gap between this like math stuff and um, the working programmer is that it's pretty rare for people to have these very abstract invariants that they're maintaining throughout the their programs because usually you're working at the at the level of business logic and there aren't a lot of like strong invariants there uh there there are some constraints that you have to uh, well i would say yeah it may depend on on the domain i can see how in financial software or like things where like uh, you're dealing with people's monies, there's some type of constraints, but I would imagine that it's not as apparent because most of the programming languages and tools that we have, the constraints are often 
expressed as if then else statements rather than mm-hmm. declarative constraints. And so it's not nearly as apparent. I would argue that that they are actually there, but like they're all just littered all over the place in multiple nested if then else statements. Huh. That's that's kind of true actually. I wonder then if um in companies where there is a strong like separation of roles between product managers and engineers where product managers or project managers or whoever are mostly dealing with things like setting up the business rules, defining the business rules and the Mm. business logic. And then Uh, they hand it over to engineers who code that up, Mm. whether uh, that's an avenue to make dependent types more popular because then you can, um, you can go to the project the project manager and say, "Hey, I have a way for you to encode all the rules that this thing must uh, have, and you don't have to worry about doing like so much QA and validation because you get this for free. Just specify like what stuff must hold." Yeah, I I wonder because like uh, the this attempt has been done before with test suites like Cucumber, right? Like Cucumber made like English sounding tests and presumably PMs would be able to write cucumber and to be able to specify stuff. But I get the sense that it's not very widespread in industry. They still just have meetings. Like people get people in the same room, like PMs, designers and engineers in the same room for a meeting and then figure out that the other parties that they actually need in this meeting are not, in the meeting so then they postpone the meeting for another week and so on so forth until they manage to get everybody in the same room and then they kind of hash things out and then throw it over the wall to the engineers i don't get the sense that tools like cucumber are are used that much and so that's why i'm a little hesitant to say that uh, dependent types will make it over as a pm tool but that said Maybe it's something where engineers can show the resulting dependent type uh, type signatures to a PM to say, hey, is this what you meant? And they mm. would be able to find it very readable. They may not be able to write it, but they would find it readable to say, yes, this is what I want. Right? Maybe it's something like that. Oh, like a kind of report. Like a yeah. human readable report that the, right. maybe the compiler says, okay, here are the... Uh, right here are the variants for for the yeah business logic part sort of part so may, maybe something like that um uh would be useful and interesting for for people in industry like do you do you get the sense that Q, cucumber is like widely used in industry i i didn't get the sense <laughs> so that maybe maybe like for for like cucumber is in the world of ruby so i don't, I don't right. know yeah i don't know I, you tell me I, uh, no i don't know i i to be honest, the only time I hear anybody talking about cucumber is on this podcast, and I think us on Twitter. Uh, there seems to be <laughs> something compelling about the idea that you can align across different roles and functions. You can have some standard specification language that aligns expectations with implementation, right? the specification with the implementation. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think we're we're chasing this thing and I think it seems like dependent types are a powerful tool, 
right? Because uh, mm-hmm. they they unify specification and implementation. Uh, but I don't know. I haven't seen anybody uh, use uh, people hardly even use cucumber. And this is even more futuristic than that. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's about time. Like we were doing a lot of retro episodes. It's about time we talked about in the far future. But actually, <laughs> right. dependent types have been around for a while. It's just these sort of ideas take a long time to permeate. So like in a sense, in the timeline sense, um, dependent types have been around, I want to say in the early 2000s or something like that. And uh, so it's already like 2023 and there's still no mainstream languages like mainstream languages are still dealing with the option monad. Right. So, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I would, I would say that that's the case, but maybe, maybe, I mean like PMs work in Google docs or like some sort of like document. So maybe with the advent of chat GPT, they can conversationally come up with a written specification that then gets uh, translated or formatted as a dependent type specification that then the engineer takes and runs and verifies that, that the chat GPT did things correctly, or that's what we actually want. So Hmm. maybe it's all possible. Yeah, that, that would be cool. Um, yeah, the other thing that I wanted to talk about actually mm. for why dependent types might be superior to um, other traditional methods like uh, doing runtime assertions or unit tests or something like that is mm. related to this article, um, which I think is fairly popular, uh, called Parse Don't Validate. Uh, basically, the uh, we'll idea... Link to that. We'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but... Basically, this uh, post is making the distinction between validation and parsing. Validation being simply checking that something is true and then passing the value along if it's not or erroring out um, if it's invalid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then parsing, which is basically adding structural information to some input, right? So... If, mm-hmm. if you think about JSON or something, like if you parse a JSON string, then you're actually taking that and adding some structural information and making that into a real data structure or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that depend, dependent types are an application of parse, don't validate, but for type checking in that what happens is that as you go in, into the depths of your program, you're able to keep track of more and more useful things. So if you pass like a string or something into a a function in a dependently typed language, then the type system might be able to uh, make, keep track of certain invariants that now free you from having to keep checking that everywhere down the line in your Mm -hmm. program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it actually saves you some hassle. One of the problems with uh, regular types is that at a certain point, they just become um, like boilerplate because yeah. there's nothing more fine-grained than just a string or a list or this class, that class. Uh, they yeah. don't actually help you know that, oh, yeah, this list came from this place. And because it came from this place, 
I can rely on the fact that it, uh, I don't know, contains at least one element or it, uh, is, it, it has been sorted at some point right. or whatever. It's, it's got this order or something. It's got this order. Uh, and so I think that's the one annoyance that, uh, a lot of people that put people off from doing uh, typing in like languages that have optional typing is that at some point it just becomes like, they're very quickly like sort of uh, you, you run out of information that you're getting from the type system. Uh, Whereas I think here, like the, the type system is rich enough that actually it's, it's helping you uh, more and more. Yeah. I think it depends on like how you treat types because I know that Rich Hickey, the author of Closure, famously eschews types for Closure, which he also considers a functional programming language, but he means functional in the immutable sense. Like he's just says, I, I, I understand the sentiment that oftentimes when you're like, dealing with types it feels more like a puzzle that you have to do in addition to the work that you're doing mm-hmm. it's kind of like uh is the implementation not hard enough here solve <laughs> right. a rubik's cube at the same time that you're doing some work yeah. and I, I can see that but then on the other hand i do know that sometimes uh people that have been working with Haskell for a longer period of time, they design all their types up front first. So then types and the type system become a design tool for them. And they get that right first before worrying about the implementation. And so in that sense, Mm -hmm. I can see how it's a help rather than a hindrance. So uh, Back to your point about like what that boilerplate feels like. I think that boilerplate feels like if is if you don't end up using types as a design tool, and mostly it's it it become like when you don't use it like that, then the compiler becomes a heckler, like just <laughs> sitting around telling you that you're doing things wrong, and it feels terrible, right? Because like right. in dynamic languages, you type some stuff. And you just hit run, it'll for the most part do something. Like you may not realize it's wrong, especially in things that are like concurrent distributed programs, but it'll run. And so you get that immediate dop- dopamine hit um, of something running. Whereas, like for in typed systems, it just feels terrible because it's just one compiler error after another. And you have to like wade through like sometimes hundreds of them when you like refactor something. And on one hand, you know, like you, you can refactor fearlessly because you know that once you get through all the errors, if it compiles, it'll probably run and be correct for a large number of cases. But man, does, does that experience suck? Like every time you're just like, uh, getting punched in the face (laughs) over and over again by the compiler. So 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 yeah, I, I I understand the kind of the sentiments from either side, and so so for for you, like as it, how does this relate again to to kind of like the, the validation versus parsing? Oh yeah, just uh, th- basically, dependent types are doing some 
some type of parsing as at least as this blog post is defining Mm -hmm. parsing as once it runs through the parsing function the thing that comes out the other side is enriched with some metadata Mm -hmm. basically yeah 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 i I, I think that's also a good way to look at it that like you you have like other information besides the like the familiar in spools and lists like in addition to to do stuff like that that the compiler can do stuff like metadata that it brings along with it right yeah exactly and so i i think that just knowing that something is an int and a list and stuff prevents certain types of issues, like you swap the order of arguments and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. I think the reason why it's a sort of a hard pitch to make to people who are averse to types is that they can just say, oh, well, I'll be careful, right? Or I can see based on this you know, uh, call site here, I haven't switched the argument, the order of these arguments or forgotten argument or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. but mm-hmm. I think with dependent types, you, it's, it's harder to argue against it because the, the richness of what it knows is even beyond maybe what you would be able to just naively reason about by looking at the code. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it is, yeah. like a, it, it becomes more of an assistant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, in terms of an assistant, did you did you try programming in any of the dependently typed languages? I I uh, followed the tutorial for Learn You and Agda for Great Enlightenment, oh, okay. uh, but it's oh, very oh. light in on the details, so I didn't get a feeling I, I for what it is. I I inst I played around with Idris a little bit. Uh, I installed it and I installed the um, Vim syntax highlighting package for it and it was kind of interesting in that you could write out the type signature and then tell idris to fill in the blanks uh, and so kind of like uh in in idris you can put in holes like you're saying i know something should be here but i don't know exactly what it is like you know, like you you know that there should be a placeholder here. I don't know what it is, uh, and then in some cases, like when you say I don't know exactly what this is, you can tell it to like split out all the different possibilities of what it could be. So, for example, something could be like a list, and you split it out. So then it'll write out the different pattern matching cases for it. So like one case Hmm. could be the empty list and then the other case is the head with everything else behind it. And so you can kind of like ask it to iteratively search through the proof search space to give you something that uh, makes sense because sometimes there can only be one, uh, thing to fill in that hole but instead of Mm -hmm. writing it yourself you just ask for it to give you the most obvious proof or then or do a search through the proof space to give you something uh and if there's more than one then you it presents the options and it picks it for you and so Mm -hmm. everybody is really excited about copilot with like uh, the ai auto completion sort of thing but like this is kind of similar but it's it's got math behind it like mm. you know like it's 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 that similar feeling that the programming 
language environment is helping you out. But, and so all you have to do is like check and read, but at the same time, you have the feeling that um, this thing is correct because it's based on math as opposed to chat GPT where you have to still play computer based on your reading of whatever chat GPT or like copilot um, gave you. And so it's, it's a little mm -hmm. different in that sense, but I, I was surprised by that experience there. That's actually really cool. Yeah. It does seem like copilot and that it's, you're basically asking it, Hey, what are my options here? And then you're now right. selecting among them rather than having to generate them all yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I thought that part of the experience was pretty cool. And I, I guess it also reminds me of a little bit of like what the semantic web thought it might be, right? If everything <laughs> was well-structured and um, connected, then you could do searches by joining and concatenating and reducing all the intermediates all down to the same thing. It's kind of got that same feel to it, except this actually works because the universe is much smaller, right? Like you're not relying yeah. on humans to populate web pages for the semantics, which they're prone to lie about. Uh, like mm -hmm. this is a contained universe so that you can actually rely on the traversal of the proof search space to give you something that makes sense. Yeah, that's cool. I think one concrete use case I can think of is uh, when doing some type of refactoring or something where I wonder if in a dependently typed language you can run queries over the program that say, find me all of the places in this program where this thing is true, where I am relying on the fact that a list will not be empty or I don't know, some other invariant. Uh, I, I, I'm expecting that some invariant is true. And then let's say that now my logic has changed such that that invariant will no longer be true. Uh, then I can easily, I can easily change that and, uh, and find all the places that are affected and the compiler will, will maybe help fix that or add the, add a check or, or something like this. Yeah, yeah. So so I think that's that's something that I haven't really seen a programming language do. And so now that uh GPT and Copilot is is um getting everybody's attention, maybe that'll help people recognize this affordance once dependent types get a little bit more popular. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You said that there was some dependent type thing in TypeScript, uh, it, how, how powerful is that? Or is it like pretty toyish? It's, it's toyish and it's kind of like a hack on the existing TypeScript type system. And so hmm. they were able to do basic things, but I don't think they had the full power of all the other things that dependent types were able to do. So basically they were able to use like type constructors to put metadata in it and then be able to do operators when they constructed new types and, and use those new types as types that you would use in your function type signatures. Uh, that was a lot of words. I don't know if that made sense, but basically, uh, 
it's more verbose. Like it's it's kind of like if you implemented FizzBuzz with C plus plus templating language. It, it's kind of like mm. that. I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we, yeah. we can put it in, in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, like this, it's it's definitely kind of possible. Like I've seen another one. There's another talk which we'll also put in the show notes where um, the uh, the the author of Idris is showing off dependent types and then he has a co-presenter which tries to show the equivalent in Scala by hacking Scala's type system and so for some of the examples he could reproduce something but for others he's like I got close but not not quite so so it's it's kind of like that I see okay so uh so in summary, I think the dependent types gives us a way to actually have programs that are provably correct, which is something that we didn't have, I would say, for a long time. And we've leaned heavily on unit tests to get us through the day because otherwise none of us would really sleep um, because our systems would be going down all the time. And then we would wonder, like, what, which one of my idiot co-workers did this to me so that i can't sleep right um right. and then you do a get blame and you find out that it was you um you did this to yourself <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so that's kind of like an interesting turn and you would think that this would be more readily adopted but i i don't see a lot of attention here do you, do you get a sense of like why that is is it because math is scary or because it's just not in any of the mainstream languages, so people aren't paying attention? Or is there not like a new platform that people see a lot of potential in? Because a lot of times, mm. like programming languages get adopted, not, not really because of their features, but because there's a new platform that comes up and that language is the best known language for that platform. So that's how you get like JavaScript right. on the web or like C on, I don't know, Unix-like computers um, or you get um, like Solidity, which is a terrible language. It's like people that hate programmers that, I don't know. It, it I looked at the, the CV of the guy that designed it. It didn't seem like he had a lot of experience designing programming languages. <laughs> yeah. But then again, I mean, like, it's the same thing with the inventor of PHP. Um, he was not a programming language guy. And, I mean, it worked. Facebook runs on PHP. So what yeah. do I know? Right. <laughs> right. So, but uh, but uh, my, my point still stands is that a lot of times the adoption of a language is based on the popularity of a platform that people want to write on. So I, I, yeah. I guess that would be my answer as to, like, why dependent types are not more popular but it seems like this correctness uh thing would be really popular for concurrent and distributed systems because yeah or like yeah. something that's business rule heavy like maybe in finance mm -hmm. but I, I don't i don't see a lot of uptake currently with that H have you found like a compelling reason why in in your travels i found a um github issue thread that was in the F sharp repository, F sharp being the ML type language for 
um, the .NET runtime. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there was a petition or some kind of request, feature request for adding dependent types to F Sharp. And the creator or maintainer of the language chimed in, and I he had a variety of reasons against it, but the big reason why he was against it was that it would add a lot of power to the language, and that power would be entirely within the reach of people who understood very abstract mathy things like category theory uh, mm-hmm. and and such and he was against this in that he was afraid that by adding this kind of power which is only accessible and understood by a very unique subset of people that it would really steer the course of the language away from being um used in in real production systems. And I think that's valid because even with a language like Scala, I remember that Scala was kind of taking off in the early 2010s or something like that. Like there was some interest around Scala, uh, I remember. And I think a lot right. of Especially the reason why that... Uh, Twitter adopted it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter adopted it. Uh, but I remember that a lot of the interest around Scala very quickly became sort of self-absorbed in that like people were just making like libraries that were more and more esoteric and more and more math-like. And so I think that to answer your question, why why is this not more popular? I think right now it still very much looks like math. And the languages and the design of those languages seem to favor people who can who have had some formal training in mathematics. Uh I think that what would really make this more accessible is um I don't know. I, I feel like TypeScript did a very good job of taking uh some fairly advanced type uh uh type system constructs like structural typing and bringing those to mainstream programmers and and almost I, mean, I I almost uh, say this every episode now, but like kind of like hiding the vegetables right in the food. Uh, like you don't tell people that it's like based on any theory. You're just like, hey, here's this cool thing. And so I think uh, right. I would. It just came. <laughs> I was inspired. <laughs> right. And so I think that it um, that's what it would take. Because I do think that, like you said, there are a lot of business logic uh there there are lots of places in business logic where even though people don't use the word invariance they're they are keeping track of invariance right especially in financial applications yeah. and other applications yeah. where like correctness matters a lot yeah but i don't know like in some sense i i wish there was a it's kind of like saying well it would cater to people that could read and so we don't <laughs> we don't want right. because like most people that are like running around are illiterate. And so we don't instead of like trying to like helping them learn how to read, we'll we'll like cater to their illiteracy. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I mean, like in that sense, I mean, I can once again, I think when it comes to a lot of issues, um, I'm kind of on the fence because I'm just taking the other side. Because definitely for me, even though uh, like math doesn't scare me, like some of this like type theory stuff is pretty esoteric. Like I'm reading some of the stuff, I'm like, I don't even know how to look some of the stuff up because they're symbols. And I was just like, I don't know what to call this. And I don't know what to put in the search bar, right? It takes a little <laughs> while to kind of figure out a lot of the jargon and stuff. But still, and so I, I definitely am on your side about the accessibility part. But on the other hand, I mean, I feel like the like math is something that is a powerful tool when wielded wielded in the right situations like it's it's not a panacea of course but it's kind of like yeah like giving people the power to do something having it available appeals having it appeal to people that are literate i don't know maybe if it drives the people that are illiterate away and it's all the illiterate programmers that are piling sin i mean i don't know in some sense it's true like yes you do want to appeal to the people that are doing a lot of the work in the world but on the other hand i guess you could compare it to like maybe the other uh, analogy are you don't want to appeal to people that have an understanding of material science and mechanical engineering because it'll drive away the people that are building pyramid like buildings so instead of like designing <laughs> skyscrapers like you just pile rocks on top of each other to build it high (laughs) you build it wide sort of thing and in some sense that's kind of what we do right like we don't write programs that are provably correct sometimes for good reason right because it takes a long time to prove something is correct like you you have to be willing to put in the work with the right payoff at the end and so what do we do we just hire legions of programmers to just fix it when it breaks and that's how we do things and it's really i think the analogy to having legions of workers building pyramids it's kind of like that like would you say that that's the case because like people that are not in tech would be surprised at this is how it works because you can see evidence of this at twitter like elon musk comes in (laughs) fires a whole bunch of people and like i notice like cash inconsistencies on the app all the time right um yeah i mean maybe it doesn't matter because i'm still using twitter so maybe those people (laughs) didn't need to be employed in the first place so i'm still using it but um but but yeah i i guess that's that's kind of like my my i would say yeah i don't know it's a balanced view i guess right yeah, I think that uh, the, I think the the maybe the media the the intermediate take of this is that it's not that people don't want correctness. I think that one of the reasons why even just basic type systems have begun t- being taken on uh in let's say Python or JavaScript/TypeScript yeah. is mm-hmm. that it was optional and the uh, the ecosystem gradually bought into it. And the way that it bought into it was interesting because a lot of the time, the earliest adopters of typing were authors of popular libraries. 
because there was mm-hmm. the sense of responsibility that, hey, this is a, a dependency. This library is a dependency for many, many other things. And so let's do this right. And at least within the scope of you know, this one library and then maybe the code that immediately interacts with it, we can get some uh, just better correctness, right? And eventually, I think more mm-hmm. and more library maintainers did this, and then uh, that improved a lot of correctness in the sort of the lower level dependencies. And then I think companies started to see the benefit of this and started to in- incorporate typing into their business logic and their code base. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a probably a better vector by which to get people to buy into correctness. And I think similarly with dependent types, I could see that there is a lot of value in uh, certain places. I think, uh, for example, uh, configuration languages or configuration DSLs like you were talking about uh, could make use of dependent types to, uh, like you said, prevent illegal states, right? Like a lot of the time people are, per, are 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 configuring their things in just random JSON files or like YAML files or whatever. Yeah. And, and you have files, no idea yeah. whether you've written it correctly until you like do whatever, like, you know, cube control deploy or, or whatever. And then it's like, ah, right. actually wrong. Uh, you got to take wrong. it down. And then there's like, you have to write like status updates on, <laughs> on why your system is down, that sort of thing. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so uh, maybe some of those maintainers of those libraries can add dependent type checking on the, on those config files. And you as an end user are not necessarily writing the type definitions or whatever yourself, but you do benefit maybe from the VS code highlighting like, hey, actually this is an invalid value, right? Like we mm-hmm. expected that this would contain at least one number or something i don't know whatever um yeah and similarly i think for other libraries like things that are doing i don't know i think parsing is is a good one where they're taking some data from the outside world and bringing it in as domain Mm -hmm. objects into your program at that boundary i think that's a, a good place where you can uh add dependent types and uh and get some guarantees that, okay, once it passes through that, that sort of membrane or that barrier, um, I can expect that the object on the other side is well-formed according to whatever constraints. And I would actually be really happy to use dependent types in that case, because it's not adding any conceptual burden to me if somehow the library uh, was took care of defining all those types, and I was simply able to benefit from the annotation that it it gave me. Uh, so mm, yeah, I, 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 so I think that it would, if there was such a thing as gradual dependent typing, maybe that's, maybe that exists. I don't know. Uh, then uh, I could I, see it, it's uptake being yeah. like more, more, um, uh, prevalent. Well, well, I guess this is a homework for our viewers that like Philip Wadler does mention in his talks that his some of his work is on gradual type but i don't know if this is the same thing like there Mm. could be there's all sorts of other type of type systems like there's session types as well and there's linear types um which (laughs) i guess we won't we won't go to but like i I don't know if gradual typing is is what we're talking about here but yeah like i I think the your point remains that there's a certain 
beachhead or foothold that you got to get get your kind of foot in the door and usually it's a combination of the user needs in this specific time on this specific platform that then things kind of like take off and until then you just kind of have to wait like wait wait for for that thing to kind of uh catch on i guess in in these kind of serendipitous ways because that when somebody decides to kind of take that on right because ruby never yeah. would have been popular without rails and rails dhh decided to build on rails because it had some of the meta programming niceties that allowed him to build some of the dsls that he wanted to do but he mm-hmm. could have just as well picked I don't know something like io or self i don't know but like there's other yeah. just as obscure languages as ruby at the time in the early 2000s so maybe yeah uh i think i i have another few ideas for what it would take to get dependent oh, yeah. types more uh more popular i think that uh-huh. uh one of the the big industries that i've seen is is booming now is cybersecurity, and uh-huh. uh it especially because in the last couple of years like almost every like random service or or company that you interact with has had some breach or hack or something breach. like this yeah um, i get a lot of notifications from have you been pwned yeah and it's like so <laughs> it's just i at this point it's getting i'm just getting desensitized uh, but I can imagine that I, I could see that the EU in, in the similar vein to GDPR or whatever, uh, might impose some type of regulation. Let's say that they were to impose some type of regulation that would put the financial burden of those breaches on the companies that end up getting hacked, then security yeah. getting the security uh, invariance correct would become very, very important because a lot of the time, if you read the, uh, the postmortems or whatever of these hacks, it's something to do with, uh, like some very, uh, like the code didn't maintain some invariant, right? Like, Oh, once you got access to one part of the system, the rest of the code just assumed that you were sufficiently authorized to take some other types of actions that actually uh, you didn't necessarily have the privilege to, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that security, those kind of security rules could be expressed as uh, proof, right? Like you want to maintain that uh, this user object has this privilege. And when at this point in the code, this user object, I want to know that they have this privilege because something up the chain has checked it and I don't need to keep checking it or just assume that they have it. And well, so the, I wonder if there's... Oh, you don't even need to have that boundary because like the, the type would be prevalent throughout your program. So anytime you use that type, it, it would get checked. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So you get it for free, basically. That like, okay, at this point, I can safely assume that... This user object, because that it has this type, I can let it do X, Y, Z. And so I wonder if 
there will be a move towards having more provably correct security uh, systems. And in that case, I think dependent types could be very powerful because they can express all types of different invariants that, uh, like, I think security, a lot of, uh, a lot of the time can be expressed as like ACLs and, and privileges and, and mm-hmm. users having certain roles and whatnot. And I think you could encode that in, in a, a proof like way. Yeah, I think so. But then uh, I guess the f- flip side of security is always convenience. And so would dependent types feel like onerous or overbearing because like you, it's hard to satisfy all the environment environment or all the invariants when all you want to do is add two numbers together, but like you can't <laughs> get it to do it because like you can't find all the ways to satisfy the invariants or something like that. Or could you have like conflicting invariants? Like would that just not compile? That's, that's my guess. Yeah. Like if you have conflicting, yeah, something like that. Well, I know that one yeah. thing, like one concern that people have is that if you have such an expressive type system, like, would the type checking never terminate? Uh, but I, mm. I think that's that's actually um, uh, false in that, like, these dependent type systems do actually terminate. I don't, I don't know what the mechanism is, but, like, you won't end up in an infinite loop or anything like that. Um, right. Probably because they, there's something they limit to, limit for it. Maybe, like, they limit the type of negations that can happen, perhaps. Hmm, like I you see. can't say like this thing cannot be something rather than this thing oh, has to okay. be something. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that, that's my hunch. But anyways, uh, the the point is like, or yeah, like, I guess my, my point is like, I wonder if the flip side of this is like the convenience aspect for like the security. Um, and, but, but like, Barring that, it seems like it should make sense because then you do get it for free every time you're using the type throughout your entire program. Plus, it's all done at compile time, not at runtime either, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there would have to be so some you other. That slowdown um, if people are worried about speed or anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that people are not at this time thinking about provably correct security, probably because the stakes are not very high to the people who write the program. Like, you know, you get hacked mm-hmm. and you get on have I been pwned or whatever and you get an email saying, we'll give you one year free like credit monitoring <laughs> or something, right? Like some trivial well, like this, penalty. This is not true of cryptocurrencies. So I mean the <laughs> right the uh, Philip Wadler, who I mentioned before, like he works on this uh, like type theory stuff. He consults for what is it company IOHK? They're like a cryptocurrency company, and they try to have provably correct programs and smart contracts. Uh, because yeah, I mean, like on Ethereum, like Solidity is just it's just so easy to like shoot yourself in the face. Not even just punch yourself in the face, but just shoot yourself <laughs> in the face. <laughs> I see. Uh, cryptocurrency is a very good use case, yeah, because you can't reverse it. You can't reverse any of these things once they happen, so you better be sure that you uh, yeah. it, it does the thing that you want it to do. Yeah. So so maybe, yeah. But then I, I guess like cryptocurrencies have to, people have to believe, I mean, crypto is down at the moment of, of this um, recording, 
But I mean, if people believe again, and if it finds its place among the financial system, which I think it will, it's been a while since we've done an episode on any crypto <laughs> stuff. Maybe we should All do right. that. But uh, but yeah, I think it definitely has a place because because I guess I I'm, I was talking about before how programming languages get adopted because people want to write for that platform rather than any specific feature of a language. Yeah. Yeah. The other crazy idea I had related to the security thing is that, okay, one, one reason people would want provably correct security with dependent types is if the EU regulated it. Uh, Another Uh would be that if we (laughs) have, we, if we have uh, evil AGI, uh, then one possible threat vector by which it can attack civilization is by launching an attack similar to Stuxnet. I don't know if you're familiar with Stuxnet, but it was uh, this remind like... Remind me again, it's the one with Iran where they like hacked into their nuclear facility and then was able to intermittently shut down their machines so that the Iranian engineers like couldn't figure out why their equipment was malfunctioning. So hence couldn't really enrich uranium that, that thing. (laughs) Yeah. That thing, that thing, you've explained it perfectly. Uh, Yeah. It was basically a virus that was uh, engineered to target that particular system. And, it exploited it made use of a lot of different like exploits to you know get there and infect things and, and and whatnot and so i think that basically a lot of infrastructure now is being computerized and digitized like mm-hmm. the electric grid in many countries uh, among other many other industries as well and so uh I wonder if there's going to be a Y2K type moment where people are like, oh, we better harden these systems because there are these uh, unaligned uh, AIs that could just, just out there right? that, that are just out there that could exploit these things. Right. And so, and, may, and maybe it would uh, start with maybe like a state like, things of national importance like electric grids where mm-hmm. it would be terrible if uh somehow uh some evil system was able to exploit uh I don't know, security issues in there and and so you would want to harden those by making them sort of provably correct hmm yeah i don't know i only know of one person that works on government utilities like that but he does transportation i don't know about anybody in electricity i I wonder what sort of stack that they have and what their kind of development attitude is is it that stability at all costs based on proven technologies or do they risk doing things like hey some guys like hey guys i found out about dependent types i think we (laughs) should really look into this like I, i wonder yeah i wonder how they adopt things for for their particular goals, and so so yeah, I, I I think I can see a lot of different places. Like you don't have to look far. Like even just in like what we would consider inconsequent inconsequential systems, like I don't know Facebook or 
Twitter and stuff. I mean, there's plenty of things where, like, I'm just sick of running into errors after error. Like, I think Jonathan Blow gave a talk once about the collapse of civilization. And in it, he challenged people to make a list of all the computer errors that they run into through the course of a week. And he had to stop after a couple days because it just got to be too much. Hmm. And I did something similar and the errors that I would run into before I would just kind of shrug it off and not think about it. But like now I, I do run into, like I notice more, I think. And you know, there anything from Twitter's like incoherent caching of values on the website to like notion, not being able to indent for some reason, uh, bullet <laughs> points to like, when you hit the back button on YouTube, it doesn't show you the, the index page anymore. Like it's just like mm. various problems. And so like, I wish we, we had uh, in some ways, like, uh, I mean, especially if it can help with like UX state, then like right. state of application programs, uh, I think it would go a long way. And, and I guess like, in Jonathan Blow's talk, he was just saying like the, the clincher was that at the hotel room that he was staying at when he gave his talk, like when he would like turn up the thermostat, like it would ring his phone a little bit. Huh. And so he could reproduce it reliably, but he has no idea like why that would ever happen. Like somehow there's some sort of coupling between the two systems. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so, so I guess this is all to say that it's in line with the idea that we're just building buildings by heaping rocks on top of each other and it's getting worse and worse. And one of the hopes for me, I guess, is that we'll find tools to help us wrangle the heap of rocks, or at least we can find building principles so that we can build high without building wide. And to me, mm. like math seems to be one of the good possibilities where we can find the solutions to that. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Like before we figured out how arches worked, like we had to build pyramids, like mm. the amount of space inside a pyramid is like tiny. Like most of that thing is rock. <laughs> yeah so yeah and, and like it when when you don't know how to build arches like you actually can't build very high without building really wide without rock and so right now we're still in the age where we just pile a lot of rock based on <laughs> our feel and i i don't yeah like kind of like a design feel and like even mm. the things that we talk about with like the solid principle, like it's not, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a feel, right. And for some yeah. of it you, you can definitely do and you get good results, but they're not, it remains tacit knowledge that it makes it hard to transfer between generations. Right. That, and so, so I think that's, that's what I mean by like the, 
tie back to like the collapse of civilization sort of thing that that hopefully like dependent types would be an example of something where we can use math that would help us build things taller without building things wider I, i think that's where i was going with this yeah that makes sense uh i think that one of the unfortunate aspects of working in in tech especially in sort of startups or silicon valley or like kind of growth stage companies mm-hmm. is that yeah a lot of the people who are originally involved in uh, you know designing the system or whatever tend to m- either move up in the sense that they very quickly due to the growth of the companies end up becoming managers and whatnot and moving away from the code base or they move out in that there are people who just do short stints for like a year two years at companies and go so there isn't this like yeah so there isn't this tradition where you can do some type of apprenticeship and learn from you know, experienced trade person, right. Who has been at this company working at this code base and like really knows everything and can teach you how to, uh, design with that feel, uh, or, or with, um, you know, with some, with some principles, there's no oral tradition or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so if that's going to continue to be the case, then we do need to, we either need to like you said, keep building pyramids, right? We just throw rocks at things and make it. We and throw that's how rocks at things. Yeah. 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 So we throw people and we throw frameworks and, and libraries more and more uh, abstraction at things, or we can make use of uh, advanced tools, which are there, right? Uh, like, mm-hmm. uh, which clearly exist and that can help, um, I don't know, bring some rigor and not, not even just rigor, like maybe just bring simplicity, right? Like I, I, I want to view dependent types as something which will be like lift weight off of the shoulders of uh, a programmer. I think that's the way that it's going to help. And Mm -hmm. rather than saying, Hey, learn this other weird thing. It's definitely got to pull its weight um, in order to get adoption. Because I think, like, people, I think working programmers would say, yeah, I mean, provably programs are great and all, but, like, we got these hair on fire problems. And and so I I don't blame, like, early stage startups for, for acting that way. Because, like, even beyond, like, correctness of programs, like, the before product market fit, the overarching, like, the high order bit or the high order problem is like, are you building things that nobody wants? And, and like, in order to figure that out, you do have to build more throwaway type of things because you just don't know. Right. And so you can have provably correct things that nobody wants, unless like you can have provably correct product market fit. Wow. Man, that would be something. Right. Right. But, but there's no such that thing, right? <laughs> that would be amazing. But, yeah. but there, there's no such thing because you know, like I think I think that exists outside of the nice controlled platonic solids of of a computer program. Um, right. And so, until then, I think that iteration. But but then maybe 
Like we need languages that are easier to refactor from a sketch into an ink and oil painting. Like usually like the early decisions Mm. somehow like get baked and like those decisions might like if they were more readily reversible, then then maybe that'll that'll make it easier. I I don't know what you could do. Maybe chat GPT, the refactoring version, like makes it much Mm. easier. (laughs) <laughs> right right something like that yeah yeah so anyways i, I think i think we we kind of like bleed, bled into kind of the second and third order effect of segment of the our, our discussion here where like what if dependent types were readily adopted and so we were talking about yeah. like maybe if it was readily adopted we could prevent the collapse of civilization um, <laughs> right <laughs> but but like did you did you think of like other things that that would happen as a result like like with the advent of cars mm. the businesses that benefited weren't the automakers but like you could have businesses like McDonald's with drive-throughs and like a lot of the uh, hotel chains across the U.S. Like people travel more, or like you could have builders in the suburbs. Like, what are the knock-on effects if, when dependent types are much more prevalent? What What do you think there, Shri? I think one thing that would be very cool is um, dependent types over the network. I don't know if that's a thing. Uh, but basically it would be very interesting. Like one of the, one of the visions of, of the web or of HTTP was this thing called like HATOS, which was that, uh, agents, like agents could interact with services and by, by looking at the structure of the response, understand the semantics of how <clears throat> of how to interact with that service. And I think that there are many reasons why it's infeasible, but uh, one of the one of the reasons also I think is just the it's very hard to know like what to put in the uh, in the holes, right? Like like okay, I have to make this response, I have to construct like some type of response. Uh you know, how do I make sure that I construct a value such that it is uh, valid on the other side? And I wonder if there is some kind of dependent typing that could be transmitted across the network such that a client can know what is the universe of valid values that, uh, so as of yet unknown, like you're interacting with a new service, you haven't hard coded against that service, right? You start talking to a new service and it's able to tell you, hey, I accept this set of values, and you can construct them and and know that they would be valid. And oh, I guess it's the uh, you're kind of going in the direction of the dream where, in order to interact with a third party API, you as the developer doesn't have to go and read up some documentation out of band to like manually yes. program your computer to talk to yes. their computer. Um, yeah so that it like self negotiates. Um, I I do know that like we mentioned session types earlier, like session types are supposed to be types across like types for protocols, 
but that's about all I know about it. And so what you're yeah. describing kind of sounds like session types, but maybe one of our listeners will be able to tell us if, if what you're describing is a session type. Yeah, maybe it's a different type of type system. I don't know. Like, I think at this point, like, there's such, uh, man, like, so many esoteric, you know, distinctions between these type systems. So maybe this is not particularly about dependent types, but let's say that it is, there are certain things that dependent types can do here, right? Like, uh, sometimes, mm-hmm. I don't know, if you ever had to implement, like, OAuth by yourself, like the OAuth protocol, it's like, <laughs> oh, pass this thing, and then take the result that you get from this response, and then pass it as an argument into your next request, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Even so I have using to- it as a library, like an existing <laughs> library, is always a pain in the ass, because you're just like, this is not, like, the last time that I used this, and, like, I don't know, it's just... And then it's always yeah. arbitrary, like whatever arbitrary decisions, it's it's never the same. And so you end up having right. to read a whole bunch of documentation and like read up on Stack Overflow to get the damn thing working. And that's <laughs> yeah. just to like log in and you're like, I haven't even started on what I was like, what this thing is supposed to do. <laughs> right. Like logging in is table stakes. I'm here like dicking around with this thing. I'm just so angry yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly yeah and and then after that you have to interact with actual api which has its own semantics right which are maybe even uh, yeah like poorly specified than the oauth spec and so uh yeah and and this is for a programmer who is doing this manually and and you're you're reading documentation and making sure to get get it all right um, if we want to get to the point where we have agents that have self-negotiating protocols, self-negotiating interactions, uh, this is a long-term interest of Alan Kay. Uh, that mm, this is yeah. he's, like in his Hacker News thread, which I bring up at almost every episode. Uh, and, like <laughs> this is what he's looking towards. Sure, it's for the things that we talk about all the time. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is this is one of his his you know he's moved on past small talk. Everyone asks him about oh how can we get small talk and whatever tools for thought more popular, and he's like I've moved on to like self negotiating agents. Um, right. But but yeah, I mean I think that okay in previous episodes we've talked about how AI agents could be self negotiating by you know, reading documentation and understanding the semantics of the system, but here I think. Uh, maybe dependent types. If you had some type of dependent typing that could be exposed at a protocol level, then uh, that could also simplify things. So then it would be like you declare invariance of what it takes in and what it comes out. I guess, I guess, yeah, I mean... Yeah, like it seems oh, conceivable. I mean, if you stretch it a little bit, because like you can, like if if instead of the types as types, you can think of them as declaring some sort of state machine with uh, transitions for a protocol. Then maybe yeah. I, I guess I how would you ask and traverse that? Are you picturing something like Hatos where? the traversal is universally understood and, but the, the states and like the next states would all be sent along in the protocol. Yeah. I mean, even, even at the value level, like let's assume that you have some type of, um, 
payments API or something. And mm-hmm. a payments API, you interact with it maybe by passing in a user ID and you get back a transaction ID. And yeah. then you make a follow-up call with that transaction ID that in which you add why don't want some oh, other stuff i see i see what you're saying yeah and so you get the next available action along with the response of what you just did and then so if you had something like dependent types it can also constrain the parameters of what you're doing not just the the course yeah right right and so that, it's like okay about, the right? next call that you make make this argument must be the transaction id that was generated by the user that you passed in the original call or something like this, which you wouldn't, you wouldn't like mm-hmm. if you just had simple typing, all you would know is, Oh, transaction ID must be a string or something like this. Right. You have no idea. This could be anything. Yeah, you don't know what range it should be. Right. And so that could yeah. change depending on like whatever Hatos state that you were in. Right. Right. And so, yeah, with dependent types, you can say, well, this must be this value that was uh, derived in this particular way, right? Um, and then it would be a valid request. Otherwise, it won't be. Uh, and so, mm. like, hey, toss, right? In the absence of this, you have no idea, right? Like, what the hell identifier should I pass here? This can be anything. Uh, whereas here, with dependent typing, it helps you maybe reason about, like, what uh, what would be a valid value. My hope is that there would be a standardized zoo or a library of dependent types for common API calls then. So like instead of like a different semantic for searching or posting something, like even like ActivityPub, right, that we covered uh, recently, if you had similar semantics, then you could just use that mathematical semantic and just apply it across the board across Mm -hmm. any API uh, because that's kind of the standard that people have adopted to. So like, uh, and maybe even better if it worked in DevOps too, that, that same idea that you can like for some sort of job to be done that we often do, like if I want to search through some third party API, like there's a common, set of math objects in the same way that we have like uh like functor maps and applicative maps for like monads like those are common interfaces and mathematical objects for those things like we have something for for like common api actions that you could take then mm-hmm. then um you could apply it across the board for any API. And so then maybe documentation would actually go away because it would be known what sort of what sort of um operations you could take against an API because it would be self-negotiated and self-discovered. Yeah, that that would be cool and and I could see it being like, useful also in in things like uh like you said, Activity Pub, which is this like federated protocol in which I think people can add different extensions to to such a protocol, um, and so maybe you could have clients that learn um, given some when they're interacting with some something on the, on the other side, which speaks like a an extension which they the client hasn't necessarily been coded 
to know already, uh, maybe it could learn the semantics uh, of the data that's incoming or or the data that it should send. Yeah, maybe. I mean, somebody, one of our viewers that might know, well, that knows more than us can tell us whether this, like, we're on the mark or we're completely off the we're mark. Really here. Crazy. But, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. That, that is the full one, one dream. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, like, maybe with with these sort of things, you would get self-negotiating APIs and you won't need to employ nearly as many developers doing integration work and can actually work on the actual app that they're working on. Um, Zapier would be a company of 10 people. Um, <laughs> right. And, and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if software was more reliable, we would just have less programmers. Do you think that would be the case? Hmm. Seems like that would be the case, but I feel like they would just induce demand for for more things. For more doing other things, I guess. Doing other things, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I guess going back to your idea people, there's plenty of non technical <laughs> founders that are ideas people. Is that what you're saying? No, no. I think that well, going back to your pyramids thing, right? Like, uh, okay, if we're spending all this effort building like pyramids. And, and we're all just hauling rocks around, then once we can build skyscrapers or we can reliably just build structures without so many people and so much uh, labor expended, then, uh, then we just build more things. But I don't know. It's, that's a hard case to make because we're already building a lot of software. So, uh, mm, yeah. Like if we got all the correctness right and and it became very simple, would we build even more software? Or yeah, maybe we would just have fewer programmers. I, I could see it going either way. Yeah, I honestly could see it going in either way, too. And I guess, do you think life would be better for users? I mean, like, there's plenty of frustration with how computers kind of work today, but. Do you think like some of that frustration would actually go away when we have some amount of correctness in in our software? Yeah, or maybe there... yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that part of the reason why computers are annoying is that they seem like they I I think a lot of end users feel really stupid because they can't get things to work. But it's not that they're stupid. It's that the programs are stupid. And um, people who know about computers are able to be like, oh, yeah, the the program is being stupid. Like, we're just going to restart it. Or like, oh, it was stupid in this way, and we just have to, like, get it back into the way that it was before. Uh, but I think that... Uh, I think most people don't have that mental model. And so they feel very frustrated by, by software. And so, yeah, I mean, I could see that it's like, it would, it would improve things a, a little bit of the user experience, but I do also wonder whether it'd be a huge step change because the things that I'm thinking about are like, Oh, you have to restart your Wi-Fi because it randomly stopped working or you have to restart the printer mm -hmm. because uh, you sent a print job and then hit cancel and then now it's like become right. unresponsive or something, right? And it's like, right, yeah. okay, but like what's the 
downside there. It's fairly bounded. Like you just have to restart the printer. It's not like the worst thing in the world. Well, so, sometimes you're running out the door because like, I don't know, like I have plenty of times where I just need the freaking ass thing to print right now because I'm trying to head out the door. It just right. won't work. I'm just like, oh, this, yeah. I don't know. Like yeah. th- those are, yeah. But then, I don't know. Like I'm thinking like downstream consequences. Some, some of that is, is hard to say. Like I could just wave my hand saying, Maybe all the anxiety in the world is caused not just by the climate change and the the geopolitical stuff going on, but just the fact that we're surrounded by machines that willfully just break and right. is is just dumb all the time. I don't know. It, that's that's all hard to say too. Yeah, I think that the stakes are pretty low with just like consumer level stuff. Yeah, I yeah. would say. Like, uh, well, I, I I would say that it's probably the the when it comes to consumer level stuff, it would be the distributed systems of the people that are maintaining those things that it would yeah. be the most beneficial for. But then, are you saying there there are other classes? I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I think just like we already talked about it, but just like in terms of, um, uh, yeah, you know, security and and running mm-hmm. distributed systems, like yeah. you said. Right. Uh, th- those are the ones where they're kind of behind the scenes, but you want to make sure that they're they're right. Uh, otherwise, you know, you end up with outages and data loss and whatever other types of, of issues. And I think people do care about those. They might not view those as like, oh, that's that was a software problem. And that, like and now my life, like they might not be aware, oh, yeah. my life was affected by software bugs and correctness would have helped that. But they do know, they do feel the consequences. So if you can't tell, I'm like taking stabs in the dark, but I I think I was trying to say, think of like, if this thing, like if we get correct software and stuff, like what happens as a result of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would happen? What would happen if we got a lot of, if all software was correct? No, I think, I think this is one of the cases where it's like, yeah, there are things that wouldn't happen, and by preventing them, no one would notice because it's hard to prove. It's hard to demonstrate that you prevented something from happening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why there's certain jobs that go unappreciated. But then maybe yeah. an analogy to think about this is like we are in ancient Egypt, and we're like, what? What if we had arches? <laughs> Like, we know that we would stop, like, would we employ more slaves or less slaves? Right. Or like, you know, like, would we have more, like, what, what, what would happen? Like, and so maybe an analogy there is like, we look at all the things that we could build. And so instead of just like pyramids as like giant tombs for rulers, the number of use cases would blossom into you know, living spaces for a variety of people and for a variety of use cases, like for, I don't know, like commerce or like mm-hmm. office space. Right. And so maybe yeah. absent of a job to be done, this is really hard to picture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess that's that's as far as I can go at the moment in in some way to think about like what would happen if software was mostly correct and could 
check itself at compile time. Yeah. Like you, you would get new stuff that you could do with more ease. Yeah, but it's very hard. It's actually really hard for me to imagine what, because it's actually so far, far from like my experience. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, it's kind of like to draw the analogy again. Like we're in ancient Egypt, we're like trying to imagine a skyscraper. Like, like yeah. office jobs don't yet exist, and we're like, why? Like, we can't imagine like why somebody would want to build a really tall building other than maybe for worship, right? Right. <laughs> right. So, like, we're like, oh, so people in the future are going to drive to this building to go up the stairs or like the elevator, if they, they can conceive of an elevator. And right. I sit there for eight hours a day at desks and in the nineteen mid-1900s, like write on pieces of paper or type on it or dictate to somebody else to type. And yeah. nowadays it's like computers like sitting yeah. there like it's it's just a little bit hard to conceive and so what we're missing i think is kind of the the job to be done of the future like that it's tied in with like something else like if we if we had some idea of like how people might live in the future then maybe we can conceive of how like the new kinds of software we can make correct by construction like what that would enable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know do you think mm -hmm. it would help people build like large language models more easily or correctly or is that not really a consequence of the actual machine learning and inference engine but more as a consequence of the data that you feed it yeah, I think the the LLM or just training a, a ML models generally is less to do with the code and more to do with uh, the data the training. Right? Yeah, like how you train it. Um, although I could see that. Yeah, I think it's just like going back to the the AI generated code thing. Like maybe instead of what we were talking about with the cucumber and the PM now being able to write a specification that the engineer uh, implements. Like if you, if you just have like a code writer AI, then yeah, your idea guy slash PM would write some invariants that matter, the business invariants. And then that gets turned into dependent type somehow. And if you had the code copilot model, that was somehow aware of dependent typing and could maybe even use the type checker, the dependent type checker as a tool um, mm -hmm. that gives feedback, then you, as, as an output, get provably correct code, right? And so right now with this kind of co-pilot models or whatever, like these code assistant models, they're purely for assistance. You can't yeah, yeah. just like toss in some input get back something and like know that it was right. Like you still need like yeah. somebody to go, go and like look at that and make sure it did the right thing. But maybe with dependent types, 
there are certain class of problems where you are comfortable enough being like, yeah, okay, the AI, like it type checked and like the AI wrote it um, and we're just going to use it. You know, in that sense, then maybe, maybe one knockoff effect, like, like second, third order effect is that the pipeline from basic sciences and core sciences to end user application in industry will be significantly shortened because once you have like some provable math concept or discovered physics concept, you can readily transform that into a working program mm-hmm. that then you can apply. So that might accelerate technological advancement as a result, because right now it takes decades for that stuff to filter through. Right. Hmm. And the bottleneck there is that converting those basic science principles into like implementing them in some system takes a long time or it takes a lot of effort. Right. Well, because they they work in different worlds because like right now, a lot of the mathematicians or even like physicists, they work in different tools. Like they mathematicians are using proof assistance and like uh, physicists are using what Mathematica or like. Things that you wouldn't mm. like working programmers wouldn't use as implementation tools or, or ecosystems. And so maybe maybe with something like dependent types where proof or programs are proofs, then even if somebody wrote something in Cock or Agda, like it's it's readily transformable. Like you can even use Chat GPT to do a one to one transformation between that and some other I don't know, C++ with dependent types or something like that. Mm. And and so the pipeline between basic science and industry implica- implementation uh, would be much shorter. And so that yeah. would accelerate like te- technological advancement. Maybe that, that would be like a, uh, that, maybe that would be possible. Yeah, I was thinking in a different science application, actually. So I once worked in a research lab that was doing synthetic biology research. And um, Mm -hmm. the way that they framed the problem is that we were trying to find some sequence of operations uh, that proteins could perform that convert Mm -hmm. some input uh, chemical into some intermediate chemical and then keep converting those until we get some output chemical. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, what we used was this library that did simulations, not simulations. It, like it, it basically had a set of rules about how, like given two chemicals A and B, like how they would interact and whether they would produce like chemical C. Uh, right. And so what we did was we took all these research papers that, uh, that showed like, oh yeah, this this is this reaction and this is how it worked. And we yeah. converted those into basically some type of like knowledge base. And right. we had some solver that would mm-hmm. generate like a path through yeah. this graph of chemicals to find like mm-hmm. the, the sequence of things that would convert like uh, one chemical right. into another. And yeah. uh, that seemed like, that seems like something that you could in fact use maybe like dependent types for in that there's some semantics of the problem space, right? Like the semantics of the problem space are like you have chemicals and certain chemicals are valid inputs to certain, uh, 
reactions and some are not. And that, I wonder if, uh, if you encoded those as types, whether you could have this elusive, like, a chemistry programming language, like a chemistry DSL in mm. which you are working with, like your types are the chemicals, right? And, and you're writing like equations or you're, you're trying to synthesize a program in, which is a sequence of equations uh, or reactions. And, uh, and the type checker helps you like uh, it, it, maybe it could be helpful for like drug synthesis or like something in which you have a search space and uh, you have some rules that you need to encode about what are yeah, valid inputs yeah. to like reactions. I wonder if the like the list of dependent type constraints would be so complicated that you wouldn't actually program that as a human, but you would just feed it into ChatGPT so that it doesn't have mm. to learn all these things itself. Or maybe the rules are generated by ChatGPT, like it's some GPT like thing. Right, because I in a previous mm-hmm. episode we talked about how, like maybe GPTs, these large language models can, from a large amount of unstructured data, be able to synthesize structured rules or like stru- uh, synthesize it into structured data, and so like relationships between these sort of things, and so right maybe it can generate this like type system for a protein chemistry uh, is it chemistry or proteins proteins uh, it, it was both in this case but yeah yeah oh i see yeah like that that it would be up to, able to uh give but not to a human but to other another subsystem whether it's like a large language model or not to be able to improve its capabilities to find because like mm-hmm. i guess if you handed it raw so i think gpts and large language models can do it nowadays but i wonder if the efficiency can be improved if you develop the type system for it or maybe right. this is the equivalent of like why have that intermediate step when you can do it all in one shot yeah and thinking yeah, yeah. out loud the only reason i can think of is that maybe it's like an intermediate representation that you want to farm out to different subsystems and not just LLMs. Like maybe, maybe LLMs can do it, but they're inefficient. So you want to throw it at a Z3 solver or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, yes, it does sound like there are some cases where, we're like, oh, we should add some structure that helps humans, but in fact, the models don't actually need this structure at all, right? Like, mm-hmm. we don't need to parse like the sentences and add part right. of speech tags right. to exactly. pass into the thing, right? Like, it doesn't right. care about that. Uh, right. But I do think that there are some, you know, I think there is interest in getting LLMs to interact with tools. Right, have general purpose LLMs that like interact with tools in order to solve sub problems for part of large problems. And mm. so in that case, yeah. rather than Right, always... because LLMs aren't great at everything, right? Yeah. Right. And, and so so rather than always having to train fine-tune an LLM that you know, knows how the semantics of how chemicals work and every other random thing works. Um, if you were able to encode those rules, certain of those rules as 
types and you use proof assistance and dependent type checkers, then uh, the LLM can do the part about reasoning and the type checker can do the part about checking for correctness. Mm, yeah, yeah, because sometimes you don't know whether these LLMs are just making stuff up or just lying to you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so I think that that's kind of the where where we're at with the thing. I, I think we we've kind of gone as far as our imagination could take us. Like I, I think we would have to like imagine use cases of the future. And we know we'd be wrong because like definitely you can see in the retro future uh commercials where people imagine there would be a computer in every kitchen where stay-at-home moms are flipping registers in a computer, which obviously is not what we have today. And right. so so I think we've kind of gone as far as we can go given the limits of, of what we know about the future today. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah, so with that, like how, how do you feel about dependent types? Like did you come into it pretty optimistic saying yeah this there's something here or or is it more like uh your feelings about some of our op- other topics where you had to have your mind changed yeah this one actually i could see like the immediate uses it took a while to get past the mathiness of it and also get past the mm-hmm. silly toy examples uh but yeah i could see yeah. it and I, I could especially see it if uh this was added progressively into languages that are, you know, I'm already using rather than having to go wholesale into a very obscure language uh, that nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, my enthusiasm is high for the things that are known to be hard for humans to wrap their brains around namely things that are around distributed and concurrent systems so mm-hmm. I, I really like the experience of using it as well where you get to like fill in the holes and it feels iteratively iteratively fun kind of like you actually have an assistant uh, like you yeah. still have to direct things and so maybe something where it's both co-pilot and agda at the same time that like that gives you even less to do and all you have to do is like start picking things like maybe you can actually program <laughs> on an ipad if you had both copilot and uh like these proof assistants running so that yeah. that would be interesting so so yeah with that i would say my enthusiasm and optimism is in fact out of this world but it would have to be a very slow rocket because I think even 15 to 20 years later, I think we'll start to see adoption of mainstream programming and programming languages. <laughs> this stuff yeah. definitely moves slow. We can't hold our breath. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. And so with that, I, I think I, you know where our stance is. And if this episode opened your eyes, check out our other episodes where we talk about the other edges of technology, why they're interesting, and what future they point to. Check them out and subscribe. And be sure to check out our audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and write us a review to help bring other Technium Eastas on board. And with that, this is Will. And this is Shree. Signing off, and we'll see you next time on the Tech Team. Take care. Bye-bye.